Hey everyone, my name is George Khalife, founder of this podcast called Let's Grab Coffee. This is where I bring successful people from different industries and I just allow them to share their experiences and mentor us through their different you know, ventures and businesses and opportunities that they've been through within their tenure. Today, I have the pleasure, the utmost pleasure. I'm very grateful and humbled to have Mark Bowden join us today. Mark is a leading Guys, I mean this, number one top body language and human behavior professional. He is an expert, the best in his field. Mark created a company called Truthplane. So it's a communication training company. He's advised top CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, some of the biggest companies, Apple, GE, you name it, he's done it. Mark has three books out, Winning Body Language, Winning Body Language for Sales Professionals, and Tame the Primitive Mind, some of Really, really great book, and these are bestsellers, guys. Mark has done a TEDx talk with over, what, 100,000 views, just phenomenal. It, ha- it was very positively accepted. He's really admired by the TEDx community. His YouTube channel has above a million views. That's insane, 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 insane. And there's a fact I'd like to share before we get started. Mark was voted number one in 2014, 2015. Get this, top 30 body language professionals at that time. Just amazing, amazing. So happy to have you here, Mark. Thank you for being here. George, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, just like you, I've got my, I've got my coffee here. Let's, so let's it's a great pleasure for me to have coffee. Let's cheers to good coffee. Awesome. <laughs> well, I have to tell you the truth. Um, you know, it may look from the outside that I've got coffee. It's, it's, actually, it's actually just water. Um, just water. All right. Hey, at least, at least you're honest, yeah. Mark. A bit late. Bit late for me for coffee. <laughs> You'll have jitters by the end of this night, so we don't exactly. want that. Mark, let's start off. I just, I'm honest. You know, I'm always interested in the beginning. Uh, what got you started in this type of field? What was your interest? What was your prime motive? Tell us your story. Yeah, so you know, originally I was just incredibly fascinated by, you know, animal behavior. Uh, a big fan of. Uh, documentaries about animals and why they do what they do and their curious behaviors. And then that kind of went into human beings. And I got very curious about why certain people would do certain things, what provoked them to do those actions. And so I just wanted to explore uh, human behavior from that point of view of how can you have any power over yourself and power over uh, the other people? around you a confusing world with people doing often what seems to be quite arbitrary things for almost no reason so i think that's really what got me into it was this idea of what can i learn about other human beings and myself so that i'll just have more knowledge more understanding and therefore more power in the world interesting and you brought up evolution in the beginning you said that was one of your interests so how much does evolution play in the way we communicate today? I mean, have you seen recurrences? Have you seen patterns? Yeah, so if, if we take, um, you know, Darwin and evolution uh, as a given, um, we've got uh, a whole bunch of structures, our brain, parts of our bodies, which are, are uh, you know, uh, inherited from our ancestors going you know, right back uh, billions and billions of, of years. And so we've got a, a part of our brain called the brainstem, and that would be about 500 million years old. And for example, that's doing what we call the approach and avoid responses, deciding whether we move forward into a situation and get involved in it, or whether we back off from it. Some people call that the fight and flight system, and that's a, a good way of thinking of it as well. So uh, for me, in, in human behavior, because I take a viewpoint that we are descendant from uh, a whole chain of other organisms, uh, some very close in similarity to us, but the further down the line you go, the more different, the more they start looking <laughs> like fish and amoeba, essentially. And so we, it's very difficult to, for us to go, well, I'm really descendant from that. But, uh, you know, the like myself, take the viewpoint that we are. And so we inherit these behaviors, these patterns of behavior that come from the body and the brain that we have and the environment that we're in. I hope that, that explains it for you, George. Of course. No, and, and 
you know, an interesting thing. I was watching your TEDx talk, right? And and you talked about the peacocking. You know, it's just the <clears> peacock shows its feathers, and you know, to to mate, to mate essentially, or maybe a defensive mechanism. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. I want to ask you, and this is sort of a fear I had before starting this. I'm like, what if, what if he, you know, he's analyzing Moran, observing all the the nonverbal cues. What is he thinking? What do you think of like flashy dressing? Is that a, is that a form of peacocking? Well, no, you're absolutely right because because it could be so many things. Um, Darwin first put across the idea he saw peacocks and he instantly went, "Okay, well, that's a really useful thing for attracting a a mate." And the female doesn't do that because the female needs to stay more hidden, but the male needs to risk being visible and being seen. Mm. And now other behaviorist after Darwin when I think you kind of missed a point there Darwin that actually what it might be doing as well is scaring off other males so is the peacocking tracked the female or and help the female select the best looking male the therefore having the best genetic code or is the peacocking there in order to scare off the other males so that the one with the best plumage is the is the only one left or the biggest plumage so that's that's one of the problems with reading body language is we have a whole bunch of theories as to uh, via evolutionary behavioral psychology as to why people are doing stuff but they're only theories um it's it's often quite difficult to test those theories and so we kind of tend to test them in the real world and we get what's called theory of mind so i'll have theory of mind about you all the time whether i like it or not what are you reading you know, so I'm, I'm, i've not been doing anything on a, on a professional level to go oh, i've got to i've got to read him simply because at this point i wouldn't know what the benefit is you know i wouldn't know what the benefit is to uh to reading you in any kind of um, I, I guess, scientific way, because it would take a lot of work. And I don't think I'd be able to have this interview at the same time and right. read you. But, but, I, but I'm full of unconscious hunches mm -hmm. about you. So, for example, just like me, you've got one of these in your top pocket. Handkerchief. So, <laughs> so that feels to me a bit like a, a, what, I, what I might call a tribal display. Okay. You know, it says to me that you potentially uh, share some of the same values as right. me around the, the way the that you look. Uh, that's what we were looking yeah. for, Mark, the Nordstrom tribe. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> tribe. That's what we're talking now, Mark. I'm <laughs> making that clear. Yes, yeah, so look. <laughs> uh, Where the, the Etro tribe, this is from, from Harry Rosen. See, I just know my feet, Mark. And yeah. So, so there's a great example of the way that we're displaying to each other. Mm. Understand, are you in my group or are you out of my group? Okay. And if I see some signals that suggest you're in my group, I start to make judgments that I'm safer around you, that there'll be more benefit around you than if you were out of my group. So, for example, I would be unconsciously and consciously looking at your surroundings and I see that you've got books mm -hmm. back there and I can actually see, even see some of the, the titles. I can see ones about Gandhi, uh, make out men of many of the others, but, but, but simply that you are displaying that, uh, reading is important to you <laughs> again is helping me understand <laughs> some tribal, We've got some tribal alliance. Now, of course, you could have just put those there. Deliberately. Yeah. <laughs> You've never read any of those books, maybe. You caught me. I don't know. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and so if I wanted to be really professional um, about it, I'd have to inquire or interrogate or interview you mm -hmm. around the signals that you're giving. I might start to question you about, about Gandhi. <laughs> and if you start going... Um, well, what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> <If you're laughs> then, yeah, suddenly I'm going, hang on, that, that signal he's giving me there maybe isn't accurate or true. He's maybe displaying something which isn't true to him. Mm -hmm. yeah? I mean, you, you, you told me about 
a couple of places that you've maybe purchased these from. And you mentioned Harry Rosen. That tells me that you must be from Canada. (laughs) So, (laughs) so there's a whole bunch of alignments that come with that. So, so unconsciously, yeah, I might be testing your body language all the time, but I'm not going to do it. Never get a word out. Jeez, Mark, it's been like 10 minutes. You already have a folder on me. I'm just, I don't know how we're going to do I have a question, though. It's interesting because that was actually one of my questions. If you're sitting at a bar, say, for example, or you're, just, you're in an event, a seminar, whatever, do you find it difficult to control or tame that ability to analyze instantly? You know, what the person is doing, sort of form a, a background check of, of who they are, where they come from, or point out their insecurities. Do you find it hard to control that? No, not really, because it's it's very difficult to do consciously. It takes a lot, and properly consciously. It's, it's a real job, and so it's effort. And if I'm sitting in a bar trying to have a drink with or people I like or just trying to relax and switch off, um, doing that isn't something that I'd ever want to do. Right. So... Yeah, I, I don't think I, I'm I'm not there. So it's, you know, I I go to events and people people uh, say, "What do you do?" And I go, "Oh, well, I'm a, a an expert in human behavior and body language." And they go, "Oh, oh, I'm suddenly very self conscious." <laughs> and I say, "It's okay. I'm not I'm not working. You're not paying me." Oh, okay. to, I see how to analyze I'm anything. Analyzing me. All right, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, you know, I think the short answer is no. I don't really sit at bars and analyze people and situations and now i would do unconsciously yeah, yeah. but the, the way you do it unconsciously is very different from the way you do it consciously all right so tell me one thing you've done this at least once consciously to try to pick up a yeah. girl is am i right mark i've done it well right in a bar like it's it's a, it's i mean it's interesting right it's a unique ability uh, well no actually i haven't you know i i'm i met my wife pretty early on and okay. so I was saved from <laughs> from a lot of that from your powers <laughs> from a lot of that stuff. Um, uh, so so no, I haven't I haven't really used any of that technical ability. And you know what, we males are particularly bad at, at that kind of thing. That's true. Uh, anyway, we're not we're not very good. Um, look, and there's being there's being in the situation. Mm-hmm. And looking for a companion or a mate or whatever you want to call that that other person, right. and the desire that runs through that, and then being able to take yourself away from that and cognitively look at what's happening, mm-hmm. and that's really difficult to do at the same time. So, you know, on the whole, I'd say even if I think I've been in a bar and I've been able to judge people really, really, or at a really, really smart level, I probably haven't. Right. Because the drivers that, that take us to that bar in the first place and go, oh, I'm, I'm on the lookout for somebody to pair up with, those drivers are really strong. They're full of neurochemicals that flood your mind with uh, different ways of um, – uh, uh, I guess processing the environment that you're in, and they they warp and distort uh, the way you're thinking. And maybe you've been having a drink, and now you've got you know what we call beer goggles. On. <laughs> you've <laughs> so <laughs> so you know in order to to read situations accurately, mm-hmm. you have to have your critical thinking mind there and that critical thinking mind will be utterly impaired if you're a really big part of the system that you're trying to assess mm-hmm. and or you've had you know alcohol um, decisions and, and to think yeah you won't you won't be making the right decisions potentially right. no I, that. I could could get a little bit closer than most people you know and and this sort of raises a concern for me because in one of your your talks and you mentioned this in your book actually that uh, a lot of what we internalize, a lot of what we, we group together to, to make a decision on someone is based on how we feel. But how we feel, 50% is made up of how they look, so their appearance. So first impressions, whether you're at a bar, at an interview, at an event, a lot of it isn't what you say. It's how you look and how you appear to the person. Can you speak about that for a bit? Yeah, so we make assumptions about people the moment we see them, and we do it very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. 
And then based on those assumptions that we have about them, we then start to make predictions about them. And then we get more data in. But the data is then passed through the filter of the prediction that we have. And we, we tend to now be biased towards um, receiving data that fits our prediction, not receiving data that doesn't fit our prediction. So we get this initial assumption, I see you, I have an assumption about you, I make a prediction, you start to talk, the, the, the things that you say that fit my prediction, I accept, yeah, the things that you say that don't fit my prediction, I just blank out. Interesting. So it, it means that you're less likely to be able to surprise me around my first impression mm. around you. I'll try and make you fit my first impression. Isn't that a self-serving bias? Of you. A, a form of Yeah, absolutely. It's a self-serving bias. It's it's a very quick way of making a prediction about somebody. Are they good for me? Are they bad for me? Will, will I profit from them or is there huge risk? And then we go off and we seek the data that fits that bias. Mm -hmm. And the bias will often tend to default to more negatives than positives. So because better, better to be safe than sorry, especially if we're with somebody new. Now, over time, I could learn more about you and you'd become a way fuller idea to me. Mm. But when we first meet somebody, we take this very thin slice of data mm -hmm. and then we go looking for everything that fits that prediction. So we get a, a very thin and narrow idea of the person. Wow. Now, it doesn't mean that that idea won't turn out to be true, but it, it could turn out to be very, very false, but we won't see it so well. It's, it's sort of like that quote. I think Albert Einstein said this, a lie told many times over and over again eventually becomes a truth right um and on that topic i wanted to ask you and a friend of mine actually asked me this right now and to ask you um mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about the placebo effect you know we hear this all the time if, if you have a headache take advil you know take panadol take something to alleviate the pain and you take it and magically you feel better a lot of people are against it though you know the more naturalistic type of of, of people who just I guess remedy their their sicknesses through through other means, maybe exercise or meditation. Uh, it, it, how how true is this in medicine or, or just in, in real life? Oh, so my understanding is the placebo effect has a a, a better than forty percent kind of return on it. So it's really good. Mm. It's it's really good. <laughs> it's perfect. It's, yeah, it's 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 incredibly. Uh, uh, it's an incredibly valuable effect. Um, you know, in, in, in scientific testing of drugs, the people who think they're getting the, the drug in some cases get very better. Mm. Well, I, I can't see particularly what's wrong with that. Because <laughs> either way, it's, it's working. Right? And it works mm -hmm. under scientific conditions. So, I, so I'm, I don't think there's anything wrong with the placebo effect. I think we've just got to understand that it's there. We've got to understand that our, our body and mind works in such a way within the environment that if something looks or feels enough to be true, then our body and brain make it very true. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's important for us to, to know, both the positive and negative side effects of that. If you display to me somebody and, and, and it feels very true to me that you're not going to be of benefit to me, mm. I'll make the world a world where you're never of benefit to me. Right. That's interesting. Let's talk about like, you know, having a preconceived notion before, before you encounter someone. Uh, and obviously the first mm. thing that comes to mind is, is a salesperson, right? And you have a book about this. Uh, how can you, how can you truly be genuine? All right. In an age or even in an industry such as finance or any type of other true business uh, heavy industry how can you be genuine when there are a lot of sharks out there who don't necessarily want to be genuine back mm. well so so life is full of risks isn't it mm -hmm. um that's right like that's kind of like saying how can you fall in love when there are so many people out there who might hurt you right well falling in love is a risk <laughs> <laughs> it's either so it's either one you're going to take or one you're not going to take yeah 
Uh, and I, it's the same thing. You know, how can you trust somebody who's trying to sell you something when there's so many people out there right. who might be not genuine? Well, buying something is a risk. Mm-hmm. Crossing the street is a risk. Everything you do is crossing. crossing the street is a risk. How do we how do we cross the street every day when it's such a risk? Mm-hmm. It's the mo- it's one of the most likely ways. You're you're in your twenties at the moment. Right. Uh, dying in a road accident is one of the uh, with actually you behind the wheel is one of the most yeah, likely you. ways. You, yeah, I'm going to go to work. It's one of the most likely ways you're going to leave this planet. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, yeah. Why would you even get behind the wheel of a a car? It's just it, it seems at some points that the risks outweigh the benefits, and so. Um, so back to the thing of, you know, why would we ever be sold something by somebody? Well, it would be because the benefits outweigh the risks at the time. And talking about risk, right? Because a lot of, a lot of people watching this, including myself, have this, have this, uh, you know, urge for entrepreneurship to start something, to feel that Mm. adrenaline, how much of your risk tolerance or your risk base is determined by your socialization from your parents, from your environment and schooling, and how much of it is based on your own understanding or rationalization of what risk means to you? So that's, that's an interesting area. So uh, there's been some tests recently around in, in the world of politics and looking at people who would see themselves to be um, uh, kind of fiscal conservatives and people who would see themselves, so, so let's just say on the right wing and people who would see themselves more uh, social on the, on the left wing. And the tests have got, gone around trying to test these people for their, their idea of um, risk tolerance. And it would seem that the people who gravitate towards the more right wing politics, more conservative politics, mm-hmm. um, they are much less risk tolerant. Uh, and those that see themselves as more left-wing, they are way more risk-tolerant. And it seems that this idea of risk-tolerance starts out quite early. Now, of course, we can't quite tell at this point how much of it is genetic and how much of it is socialization, but it seems in some science that we're seeing that there are some genes flagged for being risk tolerant and risk averse. So we could say out there that there would be some genetics for those who are more likely to be able to tolerate the risks involved in entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Um, now, having so, but what, what we also would be fair to say is if you come from a family of entrepreneurs, you're more likely to be an entrepreneur. Mm. I mean, there's always going to be uh, exclusions to that. Or, or if you, if you are educated in entrepreneurialism and the risks involved, you're more likely to be an entrepreneur because oh. you now have ways of assessing the risks. So uh, here's what I'd, I'd say about this is whether it's genetic or not, um, you can still learn how to tolerate risk. Your risk appetite. Yeah. You might, yeah, and you, you might not be pre, pre uh, disposed to it, but you can learn how to increase your risk appetite and decrease your intolerance towards mm. risk. You can also learn techniques that will mitigate uh, risk. You know, if you're an entrepreneur. Yeah, get educated. Uh, an entrepreneur is an entrepreneur. You might say to me, Mark, but I'm really worried about getting paid. And I might say to you, well, you know what? You can buy insurance yeah. against getting paid. And a uh, the insurer, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. The insurer, or here's a technique just make sure that you send an invoice and it says uh, payable on receipt. Right. Not in 30 days, in 60 days. And having it, Not in 30 days. Right, exactly. And if you're really worried, buy some insurance. Mm. So, so I, here's what I'd say is I don't wish to live in a world where we are totally bound by the genetics that we have. Mm-hmm. And luckily, I don't think we are in that world. Luckily, I think we're in a world where, as human beings, we're able to teach each other and build culture. And so you, 
whether you're born an entrepreneur or not, you can learn how to be one and you can hang around other entrepreneurs. You can, you, you can join gr groups of entrepreneurs and become part of that entrepreneurial tribe and learn to tolerate the risks. Very well put. I have an interesting question for you. It's a bit off key, but mm. uh, in a nonverbal uh, or behavioral competition, who wins? Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump. Oh, interesting. Um, I'm going to have to say who, who wins. Uh, okay, so let, let me try this with, with you and everybody who's listening to this. Okay. okay. In your mind of Donald Trump. Okay. Yeah, now get a picture in your mind of Hillary Clinton. And think, which is the stronger picture? Which picture do you recognize more? Which picture are you more gravitating towards because of it's a, it's a clearer picture? It's a simpler, clearer picture to get in your head. I'm going to guess <laughs> you've got Donald Trump in your mind. Obviously. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So who wins? In, in leadership, mm. we follow the strongest, clearest signal. Right. The strongest, clearest signal. Not the best, the most useful, the nicest, the most likable, the strongest and clearest. Because as followers... We have to have something that we can follow, that we can literally physically follow. Mm -hmm. And if the patterns aren't clear, we'll gravitate towards something that is, even if it's bad for us and bad for others. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to have to go with, in the, in the world of nonverbal, Donald Trump wins because he's simpler and clearer. Wow. That's, that's a, honestly, that was very interesting how you, how you made that imagery uh, you know, compare between both presidents. Um, right. And on that question, who would you pick? I, I, I mean, let's keep it a celebrity or someone who's well-known so people can, can know who it is. But who, who demonstrates the best nonverbal communication that you've ever seen? From a CEO to a politician to an artist, a celebrity? Uh, yeah, so I would say... Um... I would say in terms of, let's, let's pick somebody in, in politics that everybody know. I, I would say Tony Blair uh, has been um, one of the best users of nonverbal influence and persuasion. I'm as prime minister. He, he wow. um, monitors his own body language. He uses it on purpose in order to influence and persuade. He keeps it clear and simple. Mm. Uh, he's, he would be for me um, a real, I guess, star of that, of using nonverbal communication on purpose in order to uh, stand out and win trust and gain credibility, even against the odds of the facts. Mm. That's interesting. Speaking about politicians, mm. um, you know, and, and I understand that, you know, in, in certain parts of, of the world, uh, the handshake isn't, you know, isn't, uh, priority or it's not important or in some cases it's actually disrespectful but in, in our part of the world it's huge especially in politics and business that's how you show authority power confidence so what's what's the difference between a good handshake and a bad handshake can you show us i know it's it's difficult to do here, but <laughs> yeah, we'll try and do it virtually right. so uh, yeah so first of all you're absolutely right that um the handshake is not a a universal um it's it's part of touch and touch is a universal. All, um, uh, all societies, all social groups use touch. Mm -hmm. Even if they don't seem to touch a lot, they're still using touch. They're still using the not supplying touch in order to send signals. So for us, handshake is part of that touch. And what happens is, is I get to feel whether you have anything in your hand, whether you have a tool or a weapon in your hand. So, for example, first of all, if we shake hands and I don't let you touch the palm of my hand, so I don't put it in far enough, so I get to touch the palm of your hand, but, but we don't go palm to palm, that will feel really bad for you, you to do a disgust really? gesture like this. You'd, you'd flash disgust. <laughs> and, you'd, and if we were in a group, you'd look to others in your group to show them this disgust gesture to basically say this one's bad. Wow. There's also, you get to, to test 
whether my my skin and muscles is aggressive or passive or something in between. You get a sense of uh, could I am I going to be a benefit to you or is there risk involved? Interesting. So again, if I come in and I put in a lot of, I give you a hard, hard squeeze, one that would potentially um, hurt you. <laughs> And my guess is, again, you're going to look at everybody around you and go, this one's a bad one, and maybe show disgust or disdain, yeah, a snarl, or maybe even your top lip will tighten, and you'll show me anger mm. around that. And you'd probably show your, your group that as well. Uh, now, equally so, I could give you a really, really limp handshake yeah. with no tension. <laughs> well, yeah, what often people call the dead fish. Okay. And that would, again, you most likely do disgust. And you might even do a swallow gesture here. <laughs> it's, it's almost like you want to vomit. <laughs> uh, and that would give you the signal that I'm ill or even dead. Oh, wow. It's like a dead handshake. And you'll respond to that in, in a way that, again, shows disgust. Because why would you want to be around somebody who's ill or dead? You know, chances are... Uh, there's there's some kind of disease or predator around or dead. Mm. Uh, so the, now there's also then upper upper handshakes, uh, giving somebody else the upper hand or the taking upper hand, the upper yeah. hand. Yeah, which is where I'd turn your hand over. Right. So yeah. the upper hand, which means gravity is on my side and I get control, more easy control of your arm or equally so i give you the upper hand so i give you control mm. you'd be good about that one you'd feel really bad about this one uh there's also how we show that might show the handshake to other people so for example how can i show this yeah if i come if we're being photographed together right. yeah, and i want to appear dominant i'm going to make sure that i'm this side of the frame Mm, I see. Yeah, so that so that they, the the camera gets to see my big arm and more of my my arm and hand. Yeah, and yours would come in here, obviously the other way around. Yeah, and they'd see less of you. You'd look smaller. I'd look bigger. That's interesting. I was watching a documentary, and the reason I asked is because mm. I think it was uh, Bush and the the Israeli president, I believe, um, and I can't recall. I can't recall who else it was, but anyways, they were standing near the door and, you know, they're supposed to shake hands, take a picture for the camera and then walk in. Right. Yeah. And just all three increments were so awkward because none of them wanted to give up power. So they do this, the other person would sort of like, you know, fight for it, sort of arm wrestling. And the other person, when they took the camera said, Hey, it's okay. Like a little tap saying, I got you. And then when they went to the door, that was even worse because then they're like, oh, please, you know, go ahead. I'll, I'll be the last one to go. I have control of it. So it's very, very interesting. This right. I, I think I, I've, see, I've seen what you're talking about there, and I think it's uh, the Israeli prime minister at the time and Yasser Arafat yeah. and, um, and uh, George, uh, George Bush Jr. And, uh, yeah, what they're, what they're playing for is who gets to go last because within uh, some cultures, there's an idea of whoever gets to go last through the door mm. is, is the leader, has the highest status. Um, if you think about it on an evolutionary level, whoever gets to go in last, if you don't know what's behind the door, stands most chance of survival. Oh, okay, interesting. If you, if you do know there's there's resource uh, behind the door, then, and, and useful stuff, you'd want to go in there first and take control of it. So, you know, it's interesting. Most of these maneuvers, I would suggest, always come down to that evolutionary psychology of survival. The last person in the room, if you were to gamble and you don't know if there's good stuff in the room or bad stuff, you'd want to be the last one in. Because all you want to do is stay alive. And even if there's something valuable in the room, you may not have got the valuable resource, but you weren't eaten by the monster. You survived. 
So speaking about that too, right? Uh, and you mentioned Darwin, so survival of the fittest. But in the, in the mm. past, right, uh, the Neanderthals and, I mean, obviously, the, the more physically fit you were, or if you were the hunter of your tribe, or, uh, then the probabilities of you living a longer life were probably more eminent, right? I mean, you were just more fit, you can protect yourself, you can protect those around you. Nowadays, it's, it's sort of a shift, right? Obviously, we still have athletes and stuff, but we see a shift in, in, in the sort of, um, I don't know how you call it, so the, the, the importance in society. Now it's more knowledge and the education and, and what you do in business and, and how much money you make. So the way we rank each other and how we respect our boundaries are determined by other things. Can you, can you maybe just speak a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So we're, we're social mammals. And, and one of the things that we've managed to do as social mammals is get together in groups and differentiate our abilities so that, um, you know, you could get really good at, at one area that helps us survive. I can get really good at another area that helps us survive. We live in a group and we trade with each other. We exchange and we help each other live better. That's what human beings do. We get into societies and uh, the different tribes in those societies often differentiate their ability and trade with other groups and other tribes and they trade internally which means you don't need everybody to be the the best physical specimens mm. sometimes for example you might need people who have really delicate fingers so they can do really delicate manual work yeah it's no good having if you've got you know the big hunter's hands yeah. you know you 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 can't do the delicate stuff so we need some people like that we need some people who are really good at math we need some people who are really good at language yeah? and they don't need great bodies for that so when you know what when when um uh when the idea of survival of the fittest came about it, it wasn't about the fittest specimen mm -hmm. it was the fit, fittest for the niche so darwin never said oh um uh well, in fact what he did say he said it isn't the strongest or the most intelligent of the species that survive it's the most adaptable to change and the reason he said it's most adaptable to change is that what he understood was organisms adapt to a niche they find a little niche and they adapt to that and they discard anything they don't need to live in that niche because if you've got stuff that you that isn't useful for that niche it's just using up resource to keep it there so uh, we get rid of anything that doesn't work for that niche so that we are perfect in in the niche we are the fittest to survive in the niche that we literally fit in the niche so he never said it, it, you know, it's the strongest ones that are winning. In fact, he realized it, it wasn't. It was the best adapted that were the winning, uh, the, 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 you know, were the fittest, the fittest for the niche. And that's what we see that you're talking about there is, is we look after people aren't the strongest or most intelligent of the species. Why? Because they might have data that would help us be adaptable, have benefit elsewhere. And that's why, um, and that's why we don't see uh, people attracted necessarily to the most fittest of, of the specimen. People go for, oh, you know, he, she is really funny. Charismatic, confident. They're charismatic. They're smart. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they're, they're friendly. They're uh, emotional. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of factors that, that go in there. Now, physicality has some effect for sure. And it has benefits. Uh, but, it, but it isn't everything. Right. Of course, it has its benefits, right? Like there's research that says the taller and more good looking, I mean, I'm parenthesizing it because obviously it's, it's not sure. black and white, but uh, that you'd, you'd actually make the assumption that that person is just smarter and you're, you're more willing to, to hear them out, to hear them speak. You give them that, that here, talk to me. I'm, I'm here to hear you out. Right. So, so that we call the halo effect. So if somebody looks like a good specimen, have the assumption that many other things will be good about them. 
and we predict so they'll be really intelligent they'll be a, a nice person to be around and then we go looking for the data to prove that okay we don't go looking for the data to disprove it so it's called the again it's called the halo effect which means that light of the halo around their physicality blinds us to the fact that they might be annoying and stupid and not a very nice person and it's only further down the line yeah. after we've got to know them a little bit more we go they're really good looking but ah oh, they're really stupid <laughs> or disrespectful and, or rude you know, i don't like them very much um so <laughs> so yeah it, it's not uh, the looks aren't going to be everything that's for sure sure thing um, you know, I have a question. This is more on, on maybe your business truth plane. Um, mm. You know, you've coached a lot of CEOs. Can you give us an example where you've had positive results by coaching someone where you use these techniques that we're talking about? Sure. Look, we, I mean, I get positive results all the time simply around this idea of what is the body language you have to produce in order for, for people to be able to follow you? Mm. Uh, to, to notice you first of all so first of all how do they notice you how do you stand out in the crowd once you've been noticed how do you then get noticed as somebody who's of benefit there and can be trusted and then once people have got this sense of you you can be trusted how do they know you're credible how do they know that you'll be able to uh not only supply what you said you'd supply mm -hmm that leadership but also the leadership will be good leadership right. so and and it turns out that there's just a whole bunch of signals that we use for that that provoke other people to make the assumptions and create this halo effect mm. uh, and it isn't about a halo effect around being the biggest and the most beautiful it's more around being the most open right. and calm and assertive and followable so what i'm trying to train people in is what are the gestures what are the behaviors of a calm and assertive leader and how do you produce those on purpose mm, interesting so it's more like self-awareness understanding who i am where my strengths are where my weaknesses are and then leveraging nonverbal techniques that have worked over the years with some of the successful people who portray this and then applying them right. in the context of which I operate in. Is that a good right? Question? Yeah. So, so for sure, you can look at who you are, and 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 especially, what are you projecting, and is it working for you? Look, because there's no bad body language. There's just results that you wanted or didn't want. Interesting. So we look at the behavior of somebody. And we go, is this behavior getting you what you want? And if it isn't, then we go. What are some behaviors you could do that are most likely to get you what you want? What's of, what's of benefit to you and of benefit to, to everybody? Now, these might not be behaviors that you would naturally do, that you would normally do. They may be outside your scope. So I would start to ask you as my client to start to do for you and for many people some extraordinary behaviors, some extraordinary behaviors. Mm. And they might feel odd and a bit out of place and you might go, oh, I don't, I don't feel quite comfortable with it. And I'd go, okay, that's, that's quite normal. Keep on doing it. And it may never feel comfortable, but unless you do these behaviors, your chances of getting what you need for the people around you limited. And that's okay. We can just commit that you'll never be the leader you want to be. Or we can commit to being, to going towards being the leader you truly want to be and people need you to be. Wow. Now, often at this point, people run into problems around this idea of authenticity and going, well, aren't you just faking it until you make it? And, and, and I really have no problem with the word fake. A lot of people have a huge problem with it. Wow. It's, it's kind of a bad word for them. I don't know why it's turned into such a, an awful thing, the idea of a, of of putting on behaviors because we do it all the time it's just we don't check ourselves on it we don't call ourselves out on it so much because when it works for us we kind of go that's all right you know i'm sure uh, you know at times 
today, all of us will have put on behaviors for our benefit and the benefit of other people. Of course. Of course. And not gone, oh, this is terrible. I'm being so inauthentic. Right. Because you've, you've, you've had the benefit of it. It worked for you. Do you believe we all, we, we yeah. all have a mask? You know, it's, it's like we mask our true identities. We don't really want to show people our true selves. We don't want to expose our emotions. Do you, do you believe that's true? Well, I think at times um, there can be no real benefit to showing your emotions at times. At other times, there can be huge benefits to showing your emotions. It's about knowing when to show them. I don't necessarily think we're all walking around with, with masks on. I think what we do is we choose specific moments to show specific elements of ourselves. Mm. And you could, you could call that a mask. I, I kind of wouldn't. Okay. Because a mask is something, let's think about them, because that, that, what we're using here is a metaphor. Right, right. A metaphor of a mask. <laughs> yeah. And a mask is, let's just imagine that this piece of paper is going to be, actually, let's, let's just make it into a mask. All right, okay? Mark. So I'm, so I'm just down here. I'm just going to design a mask. But okay. look, in order to design this mask, I had to get a piece of paper, mm -hmm. and I've got a pen, and I'm now consciously making a decision. Okay? Consciously making a decision. And I'm naturally deciding to put the mask on. There we go. And I'm consciously deciding to take the mask off. There we go. And I'm putting it on again and <laughs> taking it off. That's a pretty conscious practice. And I think for most of the day, we're not that conscious of our behavior. Mm -hmm. So given that, I don't think on a day-to-day -day basis, 24 hours a day, we're wearing masks. Mm -hmm. Tricky thing to, like, I'd, I'd have to have a, foot, a whole bunch of different masks, be able to know when I've put it on, know when I've taken it off, know which one is best for... I think what happens is, is we respond to the environment around us mm -hmm. and we go, what would be the best aspect of myself to use right now for my benefit? Right now. I forward behaviors. We don't mask off other behaviors. I don't mask what's happening in my face. I start to choose what my face is going to show mm. and what ideas I'm going to bring forward. I hope that makes some sense. Oh, it, it definitely does. Thank you for bringing that in perspective. Um, you know, we have, we have about 10 minutes, so I'd, I'd really just like sure. to jump in now into, into more of like a leadership discussion where we can, mm. you know, it's, it's sort of uh, interesting to see your projection, right? Uh, and in your progress in your work, you know, you've, you've obviously mastered these skills. You created a company that's very successful you know, you, you even mentor and train some of the top CEOs in Fortune 500 companies. You've written books, TEDx talks. How did you get to this stage? You know, what was it that was the differentiating point for you? What did you do when, say you were in your mid-20s, what was that driving factor? Yeah, so I would say if there's a, a secret source to anything, it's just being persistent. It's not stopping. It's just keep on going. Pick a target and just keep on going for that target. Knowing that other people who have picked the same target, they'll drop off along the way. Right. Way more capable than you. But they won't have the resilience. They won't. So for me, it's more about determination, resilience, picking a target and never giving up on the target you don't have to be the smartest you don't have to be the best looking you don't have to you just have to know what the goal is and keep going longer than yeah and you also have to have and correct me if i'm wrong but you have to have that tough skin that that allows you to be persistent especially when a lot of people within your community even with your circle of friends even family at times parents don't really believe in the end goal that you're trying to run towards. Absolutely. They won't understand the end goal. They won't see its benefit. Those that do understand the end goal and they're going for it as well may want to compete with you. So now you've won yourself an enemy. So the moment you step out there and go, here's what I want to achieve, you've now got a whole bunch of people who know you're trying to achieve that and they're going to, they're maybe going to come at you. Mm. So, and, and, 
you know what, I can, if you came up with an idea right now, yeah, without any effort, I'd be able to tell you why it can't be done and how you won't achieve it with no effort whatsoever. It would take no brain power for me to come up with all the reasons why you'd fail. Yeah. And I wouldn't even be an expert in the field or have, wouldn't need any knowledge. I would instantly be able to give you a good one hour lecture on why it won't work, which is why you've pretty much got to ignore the people who are telling you why it won't work. Because they're not doing it because themselves. So how, how but anybody, but anybody can do it. Yeah. I can grab somebody from the street and go, here's my idea why it won't work. And they go, um, yeah, they come up with so much stuff. <laughs> yeah. So there's no, it doesn't take an expert to tell you why, why something <laughs> to tell you how you're going to fail. Mm. Okay. What you do need is people who have some knowledge of a certain area who can go, look, here are some of the things that could get in your way. Here's what you want to look out for. Now go and do it. <laughs> but here's what you want to look out for. That's useful. You do no, 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 need people who go, I don't know anything about this, but go out there and do it. Right. You need those people. It's funny. Yeah? It's funny. In my, in, you know, two of my best friends, I'm sort of like the, the optimistic person who's very opportunistic, right. uh, you know, tackles opportunities, is always positive, looks at, on the bright side. Uh, and it's not so much that I'm, I'm gullible to what's going on in, in the world. I've just felt, you know, pain in my, in my you know, previous experiences and that has led me to, to embrace change and to want to grow from it and share it. Uh, but you raised a great point. And, and one of my great friends is, you know, he's more on the, on the sort of pessimist, uh, cynical side. He's, he's, you know, very, very analytical and questions a lot of questions. And that's such a value add to me because, you know, sometimes I can be oblivious to, to, to the small details that he raises. You know, and, and so it sort of compliments. Um, right. So you do need partners and friends and advisors who can help you understand some things that you might not have noticed. But they still need to be people who who'll go, go and do it. Yeah. But these people who are just going to go, here's why it won't work. They're useless to you. Like, you know, George, you've got me on your pod now. And if you go went and grabbed somebody from the street and said, look, um, I'm thinking of inviting, you know, the number one expert in their field onto my my show. Um, can you tell me, you know, all the reasons why I won't be able to do that? They'd be able to come up with so many reasons. They'd go, well, how many have you done so far? Well, I've done, you know, four. Well, you haven't done very many then, have you? So, so does he know you? No, he doesn't know me. <laughs> oh. Um any qualifications in doing live podcasts with experts no i don't have any oh, well that won't work then will it <laughs> um <laughs> yet here i am yeah, that's the magic right so right so you don't you don't need people who are amateurs at telling you why something isn't going to work oh. you do need professionals who are going to tell you what the barriers to getting it done are and who look forward to your success so that you can come and ask them about other barriers as you grow what you're doing. Right. Those are helpful people. So it's taking calculated risks, uh, right, and, and really understanding what you're trying to do. So it's really balancing uh, optimism with realism. That's sort of the, the fine line, right? Right. I mean, I would say when I think about optimism, uh, I, I would just call that knowing the goal. Mm. Having, that go having the goal in sight and making that really clear so you know where you're going and you can tell people where you're going. Because right. then they can join in and they can follow you. Um, and, and don't give up. That maybe creates optimism. Yeah? My, my worry about using the idea of optimism is that's a mindset. And I, because I'm in behavior, always want to change things into behavior. I don't want to be reliant on a mindset. I want to know the things that we can actually do in order to make something happen, not happening. So when you talk to me about optimism, I go, okay, can we just turn that into knowing the goal and not, and not stopping? Right. It doesn't matter. Optimism, pessimism, cynicism. If you have a clear vision, a clear goal, you can still achieve it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, Certainly, if you have a clear goal, 
and you don't give up on getting it, would I gamble more money on you winning? Yes. Right. If you came to me and go, Mark, I've got no clear goal and I'm quite likely to give up. Of course, right? <laughs> going, okay, you're not having my money. I'm not gambling <laughs> on you. You go to me, Mark, I've got a clear goal and I will not give up until I hit it. Mm-hmm. That's, and then I'd say to you, okay, what's the goal? Let's go get it. <laughs> now, if, you, if, if then you, you can't, you go, well, it's kind of it's like this and it's a bit like this and it's hard to explain. Now I'm getting worried again. But if you go, here's the goal, yeah, and it, you, give, you paint me a really clear picture of that, or you take me and you show it to me, or you, you help me experience the goal. Mm. So I've actually experienced your product, whatever it is you're, you're producing, you know, what you're trying to give to people. Then I get it. So again, I, I, I want to turn, when people talk about mindsets that they need in order to achieve stuff, I really want to convert that mindset into a set of behaviors Interesting. rather than them living in a, in a mindset. Because here's the thing, do you know that you can be optimistic tomorrow? For sure not. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. Like, yeah, tomorrow it might be one of those days where you go, oh, I feel just terrible today. Mm-hmm. But even if you feel terrible remember what the goal is right your why almost your purpose right your purpose <laughs> right right can you remember the purpose can you remember that yes you will can you not stop trying to hit that goal okay that's a little bit more difficult we might need some techniques for that on a bad day mm-hmm. yeah we might need some you know but again the, the great thing is, is we can create some techniques for you not stopping even on a bad day right optimism i don't know whether you can switch that on and when it's when it's off in your head mm-hmm. and that's why i like to approach um mindsets from a physical point of view from a behavioral point of view because i want to be able to trigger a mindset i don't want to just hope that it shows up right. most days and you're also tapping into the tangible not really the intangible when you speak about sort of a, a mindset right Right, I want it to be physical. I want to have a physical effect mm-hmm. uh, on the world. Um, not, not that it's not okay to have a, a, a mental effect or a spiritual effect. Uh, I've I just noticed that more gets done quicker when you have a physical effect <laughs> on the world. Very true. It happens quite quickly. And you quickly know whether the stuff that you've done was worked or didn't work. And, and what's your... So then you, Sorry, can they continue the thought? Yeah, so I was going to say, then you can, um, you can innovate, you can iterate something. Mm. If you, you know, if it's a bad day, but you went to hit the target and you didn't give up, you'll have moved a little bit further and you'll have known whether it's working or not and you can adjust. Right, keeping it flexible. I have one, one last question for you and, and this, is, this might be personal, professional. It's up to you how you'd like to answer it, Mark. Sure. What's next in line for Mark Bowden? So what's, what's next in line is uh, I got a new book uh, coming out in 2017, which I'm co-writing with uh, Tracy Thompson, who works here at Truth Plane as well. And this is specifically on reading body language and really a new way of thinking about how you read body language. So it doesn't use this if then this that method of if crossed arms then is closed uh, kind of idea uh, it, it tries to take in more context more situation and you have a critical thinking viewpoint and also it helps you understand what you might want to do to test the assumptions that you have about others body language so it's just way more intelligent and way more powerful wow way of looking at body language so that's the that's the book that i'm i'm working on and um also uh just more online training at the moment there's there's a a very few people who can actually work with me because you either have to work with me one-on-one or you have to show up to a big keynote that i'm doing which is usually pretty exclusive so um we now have online training and you can go and look at that by doing bit.ly bit.ly forward slash truth plane or going to the truth plane website that's uh, truthplane.com and looking at 
for online uh, training there. And that's an opportunity for anybody anywhere in the world to get training with me um, via video, great quality training via video. So we're out trying to promote that as well. That's, that's the two next big things. Perfect, perfect. Thanks so much for sharing all this great stuff, Mark. I know every single viewer who tuned in really appreciates. I appreciate every single advice you just gave me. And, and this was an, just an awesome talk. So humbled and grateful. Thank you again for this. Well, it's a great pleasure, George. Anytime. Uh, it's always great finding people who are out there trying to make a difference. So it's a great pleasure being on your show. Cheers, Mark. Take care. Cheers.